0: Today's scripture reading will be taken from the book of Ezra, chapter 8, verses 21 through 23 and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Starting in verse 21, Then I proclaimed a fast there, at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek Him from a safe journey for ourselves, our children,
1: A big manufacturing company decided it was time for a shakeup. So they hired a new head of HR. And this, uh, this new department head was determined to rid the company of any and all slackers. And so when he was going for, through a tour of the facilities, one of his first days on the job, he noticed a guy leaning against the wall, holding a box and doing nothing. So he walked up to that guy, wanting to show that he meant business because all these other employees were in the room. He walked up to that guy and he simply asked him, how much money do you make per week? And the the young man was a little surprised. He said, I make about $500 a week. Why do you ask? And the new HR honcho said, wait right here. Went to his office, came back a couple minutes later, handed to the guy $2,000 and said, here's four weeks pay, get out of here, you're done working here. And as that guy left, this HR guy looked at the rest of the employees and said, does anybody want to tell me what he did around here? And a voice in the back of the room said, he was the pizza delivery guy. (laughs) And the point of that story is that it's important to pay attention to the details. A popular preacher once said, the difference between something good and something great is attention to detail. And the construction industry, it understands this. If you've ever built a house or been involved in a construction project, you know that before construction begins, you're handed something called the construction drawings. We commonly have referred to them as blueprints. Architects come up with the drawings ahead of time. The whole design is planned out and placed on documents that are then kept at the job site and sent to the, uh, the county offices for inspection purposes. And those documents guide the entire proce- process. And pages in that construction drawing document will include images such as what you see on the screen. And there will be diagrams laid out throughout the entire document that detail the measurements of different parts of the structure, that detail the materials which will be used in the construction, that will show where certain objects and certain systems are going to be located throughout the structure, that even include the uh, structural um, engineering schematics for the whole project. Everything is laid out in detail ahead of time, and all the people have to do is follow the directions to construct the, the whatever project it is successfully. These drawings provide all the necessary details for the project to be correctly constructed. If the details are overlooked, then the structure may be compromised. And as we investigate Ezra's work in leading this second group of exiles back to Jerusalem, what we discover is that that his attention to detail is what makes this mission successful. So as you know, we've been in this study for several weeks on Ezra and Nehemiah. We haven't even got to Nehemiah yet, but that's coming. We're in the second group of exiles to return to Jerusalem, led by Ezra. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 10. The first group went back some years before under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua. They took up Ezra chapter 1 through 6. We're now looking at the second group of exiles returning under the leadership of Ezra. That takes up Ezra chapter 7 through the end of the the book. Ezra chapter 8 will be our focus today because there are three ways in which Ezra shows his attention to detail that matter to you and I today. And the first of those things I want you to notice, the first thing that Ezra teaches us about paying attention to detail is that we should pay attention to the obedience detail. Let me explain what I mean. According to the first 14 verses of Ezra chapter 8, Ezra assembled a group of 1,500 Jewish men to return with him to Jerusalem. Now, since the list omits women and it omits children, we can pretty much conclude that there are more than just 1,500 people going back with Ezra. In fact, it's estimated that there were probably somewhere close to 5,000 people in this group. That's a, that's a pretty sizable group to take back to Jerusalem. Now, it pales in comparison to the first group. The, the, the first group that went back in Ezra chapter 1 through 6, that first group was comprised of uh, nearly 50,000 people, um, 42,000 plus exiles and 7000 plus servants and 200 singers and so on. But still 5000 people, if that is an accurate estimate of those returning, he's got a sizable group. Now look at what Ezra says happened in verse 15 of Ezra chapter 8. Ezra says, "Gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped 3 days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi." Now, Ezra assembles his caravan of 1,500-plus returnees and discovers that even though that there were priests among that group, and we know that there are priests among that group, because if you look at verse 2 of Ezra 8, there's reference to the sons of Phinehas and the sons of Ithamar. Those are Aaron's sons. So these, this is the ancestry of Aaron, the brother of Moses, who was the first priest. So we know there are priests in the group. But even though there are priests in the group, there were no generic Levites in the group. Why does that matter? Well, there's a couple things you need to know for us to understand why that matters. First, you need to understand that both priests and Levites are members of the same tribe, the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was set apart for special service to the Lord because they were the only ones to side with God during the whole golden calf episode. You may remember that when Moses descended Mount Sinai with the tablets of the testimony, he discovered some of the Israelites worshiping this golden calf. He walked over to the side of the camp, drew a line in the sand, and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come with me. Only the tribe of Levi gathered with him. Only the tribe of Levi chose to be on the Lord's side in that moment. And they were ordered to uh, kill those who were engaged in the worship of the golden calf. From that day forward, the Levites were set apart for special service to the Lord. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 8, where it, says, where it says, The Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name. The other thing you need to understand about the, the priests and Levites here is that you need to understand that priests were from one specific branch of the Levitical family, to be a priest you had to be specifically a descendant of Aaron, Moses' his brother. In Exodus chapter twenty-eight and verse one, God instructed Moses to appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Then in Exodus chapter thirty and verse thirty, after God instructed Moses to anoint and consecrate all those tabernacle furnishings that we've been uh, studying on Sunday nights, He then told Moses to anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them as priests. So, while priests, well, let me rephrase that. So, while all priests are Levites because they're from the tribe of Levi, not all Levites are priests. You had to be specifically a descendant of Aaron in order to be a priest. So, that's the distinguishing mark of a priest and a Levite. The other thing you need to know is you need to know the function of these two groups. The priests who were anointed and consecrated, who had been made holy, they were responsible for mediating between the unholy people and a holy God. Because they are consecrated, they could oversee the sacrificial system and they could interact with the tabernacle furnishings. They could go light the candle. They could go uh, put the bread on the table. They could go burn incense on the altar and so on. They could interact with those furnishings of the tabernacle and they could make the sacrifices on the altar because they were consecrated they were set apart for this service levites couldn't do that levites while the priests were the 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 mediators between an unholy people and a holy god the levites were in a in in a sense the protectors of the priests they protected the priests from being contaminated by the people. So you can look, in, uh, particularly in numbers, chapter three, verses five through 10, you, you can find out that they're instructed to keep guard over Aaron and to keep guard over the priesthood. And they were also responsible for transporting the tabernacle and its furnishings. They were the ones who carried the ark. They were the ones who carried all those sacred objects. They're the ones who handled those things after the priests prepared them for transportation. And so the, 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 um, the Levites had a special function. They, kept, they, they operated in such a way that they managed to keep the priests holy, consecrated, and set apart. The priests did not do any unholy tasks The Levites took care of that for them. So it was necessary for some Levites to return with Ezra, particularly because he was transporting contributions for the temple. And according to Mosaic law, the Levites were the ones who were responsible for transporting such holy objects. So Ezra sent some influential men to go to recruit some Levites for the trip. And all 38 Levites agreed to join Ezra's group. As one commentator pointed out, that might seem very few, but in view of the speed with which they had to first decide to go and then prepare for a momentous move, Ezra regarded their presence as a mark of God's special grace in this moment. So here's the thing. Ezra gets his group together, and he's paying attention to the details. He notices that he doesn't have anyone who can transport the things that have been donated to the tabernacle. He notices that they have not acquired the personnel to be obedient to Mosaic law when it came to the transportation of these objects. He's paying attention to the details. And so he has to go out and recruit some Levites so he can be sure to do things the way that God told them to do things. You see, Ezra was more concerned with doing things correctly than doing things speedily. It would have been easy for Ezra to rationalize disobedience on this occasion because he didn't have the people. He took volunteers and 1,500 men volunteered, and it wasn't his fault that none of them were Levites, so he should be able to just justify, Lord, well, you, we've got. Why not rationalize disobedience? You and I do it all the time, don't we? We justify our sin in many different ways. But Ezra wasn't going to do that. Ezra took the time to do things correctly because he paid attention to the detail. And I think he did that because Ezra understood that obedience is God's love language. I've talked about love language a couple of times throughout this year already. You and I have different love languages. Some of us may share some similarity. But God's love language throughout Scripture is associated with obedience. In the Ten Commandments, God declared, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus, in his final discourse, said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments and also, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then John wrote in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, this is love of God that we keep his commandments. And in 2 John chapter 1, verse 6, he said, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. There is a theme throughout Scripture that God sees our love for him through our obedience of him. That's his love language. That's how he understands that we love him. We communicate our love for God through our obedience of Him. So consider this morning whether or not you're paying attention to the obedience detail. In other words, are you doing everything in your power today to obey God's commands? Or are you rationalizing behaviors and attitudes and decisions that are outside of His will? Because Ezra chose to be obedient in every detail. He understood, that's how he showed God how much he loved him. What does your level of obedience communicate to God about your love for him? That's the question Ezra makes us consider this morning. Because Ezra teaches us to pay attention to the obedience detail. Ezra also teaches us to pay attention to the faith detail. After Ezra got his group in order, look at what he did next. This is Ezra chapter 8, verse 21 through 23, which we read a moment ago. There we read Ezra uh, say, Then I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. You see, before setting out on this trip, Ezra proclaimed a fast. Now, one author defined a fast as the self-denial of normal necessities in order to intentionally attend to God in prayer. The self-denial of normal necessities in order to intentionally attend to God in prayer. In the Bible, fasting is always associated with refraining from food. And its purpose is summarized by Jesus when he was tempted to turn stones into bread during his 40-day fast, and he said, Man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, a fast was employed when someone wanted to humbly petition God for his favor and or forgiveness. And they would demonstrate their humble petition by giving up something of necessity in order to show that they are fully and wholly dependent on God. So Ezra proclaimed this fast as a means of petitioning God for his protection since they were about to embark on a 900-mile, four-month dangerous journey without military escort while traveling with children and valuables. And to show God how much they depended on him, they gave up food. Now, this is a bold act of faith on the part of Ezra. Because communal fasting was not as common of a practice prior to the exile as we might think. There were a couple of occasions where the the whole nation was called upon to engage in a special fast because they were about to go into battle or because um, they had been disobedient to God and needed to rectify a situation. The only time that the whole community of Israel was commanded to fast was every year on the Day of Atonement. It was a day of fasting for the whole community. So it was not something they did frequently. And Ezra here is saying what we're about to do and our need for the Lord is so important that we need to collectively fast. All of us together need to engage in this time of prayer and fasting. So Ezra is asking this group to do something unusual, something extraordinary, something even humbling to demonstrate their need for the Lord at this moment. What's interesting is that when Nehemiah makes this trip to Jerusalem some years later, he will be accompanied by a military escort. You can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 9. His escort may have more to do with the uh, the, um, king making him take an escort since he was traveling to Jerusalem with a political assignment as governor of Judah. But in this instance, Ezra's not being required to take a military escort. And, And Ezra has made the decision to not request one, to not ask for that. And his decision, his decision to reject such an escort was intentional. Because when they made it to safely to Jerusalem, Ezra would be able to give glory to God alone for their success. Which is exactly what he did in Ezra chapter 8 and verse 31. If you look at that verse, Ezra claims the hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. So this this successful journey that could only be attributed to God ultimately testified to the king and to the entire Persian Empire that even though God's people's exile made it look like he was weak, he was, in fact, still the one true God who was in control. And here's, here's the point of all this. Here's why we're looking at Ezra's call for a fast. It's because Ezra intentionally chose to operate based on faith. He chose to deny the use of military escort and petition God for his protection instead. He exemplified what it means to walk by faith and not by sight, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says. And it's something we're expected to do, to walk by faith and not by sight. And the reason Ezra walked by faith and the reason we're called to walk by faith is one and the same. It's because people living out their faith are one of, if not the greatest witness to the presence and power of God. Someone who's walking by faith testifies to the power and the presence of God in a way that nothing else can't. Just as the faith of Ezra and exiles testify, testified about God to the Persian Empire, so our faith as modern-day exiles testifies to the world in which we live. Consider what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers— they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter calls Christians exiles because we haven't made it home yet. And he instructs us to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep our conduct honorable so that unbelievers, that's another word for Gentiles, so that unbelievers may through us come to know and glorify the one true God. So consider this morning whether or not you're paying attention to the faith detail. In other words, are, are you operating based on faith or based on fear? Which is evident in your life by the way you live? That you're a man or a woman of faith or that you're a man or a woman of fear? Ezra chose faith and it gave the world the opportunity to see his God. Is that same opportunity available to the world around you because of how you live out your faith? Ezra teaches us to pay attention to the faith detail and challenges us this morning to consider whether or not we exhibit the same faith that he possessed. And there's one final thing Ezra teaches us. He teaches us to pay attention to the stewardship detail. Part of Ezra's assignment on this trip to Jerusalem, based on Ezra chapter 7, if you go back one chapter and look at verse 15 through 19, one of his assignments is to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, as well as the vessels that have been given for the service of the house of your God. Ezra's been commissioned by king, by the king of Persia to carry back gifts that are being freely given to the Lord, as well as some vessels, some objects that will be used in the service of the Lord at the new temple. When you get to Ezra chapter 8 and begin reading how Ezra carried out this responsibility, you'll quickly discover that he was scrupulous in his handling of these resources and these treasures. So look at verse 24 of Ezra chapter 8. We find out that he entrusted the care of these items to 12 of the leading priests, and ten of their kinsmen. And then according to verse 29, he instructed them, these people he's commissioned to carry these items, to guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. And then if you go back to verse 25, in Ezra chapter 8 verse 25, it tells how he had meticulously weighed out all of these items. And verses 26 and 27 serve as a written receipt a written receipt of what was in their possession as they carried them to Jerusalem. And then finally, you can get to verse 33 and 34 of Ezra 8 and read how they delivered these items to Jerusalem. And there we're told that the whole was counted and weighed and the weight of everything was recorded. It's a whole bunch of details that amount for boring reading for you and I. But they're here for a reason. The information, as one author pointed out, Demonstrates Ezra's careful handling of these objects and ensured that none was lost or stolen. And the fact that he protected himself. He protected himself from claims that he had made personal gain from this process. Everything he does here, all of these details, show that Ezra was being a man of integrity through this process. No accusation could be mounted against him but the way he handled these funds and these objects and these treasures. Ezra's ensuring that he's being a good steward of what God has entrusted him with. And here's the point. Ezra understood that what he had been entrusted with was not his own. And therefore, he was operating as a steward. His primary objective was to handle those things that belong to God blamelessly. So he took extraordinary measures to ensure their safekeeping the safekeeping of the finances and the objects. And he took extraordinary measures to ensure that no one could accuse him of impropriety.
2: You
1: know, as Christians, we are stewards. Throughout the New Testament, we are frequently called servants. And Paul uses that title in regards to himself and his co-workers in a unique way in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, where he says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul applies the steward identity to himself and his co-workers as servants. And throughout the New Testament, you're going to see numerous times that you and I as disciples are identified as servants. And when we're identified as servants, that implies that we're stewards as well. And that implies that we're going to be held to this standard of being found faithful. And our stewardship entails... Not only how we handle the financial resources God has entrusted to us, but also how we handle our time, our energies, our opportunities, our skill sets. I think that's why it's important to notice what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. In other words, we need to look at everything that God has given to us and see it as something he owns and we steward. And we need to consider whether or not we're handling it properly. So consider this morning whether or not you're paying attention to the stewardship detail. Are you using the resources God has entrusted to you responsibly? Ezra chose to take extraordinary measures to ensure that he was found faithful as a steward. Are you doing the same? Doesn't matter if it's your, your, the, your income, doesn't matter if it's your time, doesn't matter if it's your skills, whatever it is, are you using it for the glory of God? Are you stewarding it correctly? Because one day you're going to give an account of your stewardship and you're either going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, or you wicked and lazy servant, depart from me. One or the other is what you're going to hear. And it's going to be based on how you paid attention to the stewardship detail. See, I think there are three three details we learn from Ezra. We learn the obedience detail, we learn the faith detail, and we learn the stewardship detail. And all of us need to be reminded of those details because far too often we forget to pay attention to them. And as I close out this sermon, I want to help us understand why details matter so much. And I want to do so by appealing to the most famous ship ever built, the Titanic. Pictured on the screen is the Titanic having rivets installed on her hull while she was under construction in Belfast, Ireland in 1911. One year later, she would sink during her maiden voyage. She was the largest ship afloat at that time, and due to her vertically closing watertight doors that could seal off certain compartments, she was believed to be unsinkable. And as we all know, despite those technological advancements, she sank less than three hours after colliding with an iceberg in April of 1912. When her wreckage was discovered in 1985, experts began the process of trying to discover why she sank so quickly. It was long believed that the impact with the iceberg must have cut a 300-foot-long gash in her hole just above the waterline, causing water to pour in and make her sink. But modern ultrasound surveys of the wreck have found that the actual damage to the hull consists of six narrow openings covering a total area of only about 12 to 13 square feet. That's roughly the size of two sidewalk squares. That's as much of a hole spread out over multiple areas along her hull, not in one compact area, but spread out that amount to the space of two sidewalk squares. It wasn't enough of an opening, a gash, to allow water in that would sink her. What they discovered doing metallurgical analysis on rivets found at the bottom of the ocean is that the, the iron used to make those rivets had more slag in it than is acceptable today for maritime standards. Slag is this glossy uh, material that, that's usually burned off in the process. It's, it's an impurity of sorts, if I understand it correctly. And so these rivets... They weren't constructed to withstand the temperatures of the icy northern Atlantic, much less the impact of an iceberg. And so when the Titanic collided with that iceberg, the rivets just popped off. And so those pieces of the hull gaped open from the lack of rivets, and water was able to pour in even though there wasn't that big of a hole. See, the undoing of this impressive ocean liner that measured 883 feet long and weighed more than 46,000 tons was one of its smallest details that was compromised due to inferior material. And the point is that even the smallest details matter because they can have tremendous long-term impact. Ernest Hemingway once said, every man's life ends the same way. It's only the details of how he lived and how he died that distinguish one man from another. This morning, as we continue our study of Ezra, we look at the details, because the details, well, they matter. And the question I want to leave you with this morning is are you paying attention to the details? Right now, the most important detail for you to pay attention to is whether or not you've done what the Bible says you must do to receive salvation. Throughout the Bible, you can discover that we're expected, in order to receive salvation, we must believe that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. And we must repent of our sins. We must confess that identity of Jesus and we must be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. Right now, you have the opportunity to make that decision and to add that detail to your life if you need to. And it may be that you're here having become a child of God, having had your sins washed away, but you're struggling, and there are things in your life that need to be corrected, and there there are prayers that need to be prayed for you, and you need the help of this congregation in some capacity. Well, don't ignore that detail either, because today we're gathered here so that we can be encouraged, uplifted, and admonished if necessary. We're here for each other to build one another up and to help one another get to heaven. So if you have any need while, while we're here, we encourage you to come while we stand to sing this song. Oh,
2: Jesus, I surrender all surrender to him.